Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Self-love, Sherry. That's just the kind of term that I would have called a frou-frou term. I don't know where I got frou-frou from, but back before I understood how important it is and how elusive it is. First of all, before we talk about that topic, do you know where I got the term frou-frou? Little bunny foo-foo? Frou-frou? Foo-foo? I do not. I would call it hippy-dippy. Frou-frou and hippy-dippy. Like, you know, but I like hippies, but what I, you know, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Frou-frou. You know, no one will ever be harder on you than you are on yourself. No one will ever be harder on me than I am on myself. That's kind of cliche. You hear that a lot these days. But I think it's super true. The other the other cliche that fits right in there, cliche phrase is, we are our own worst critic or our own worst enemy. Self-berating is part of the human experience. I think... You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about universalisms, things that we see over and over again, and and we don't have scientific evidence to prove that they happen the majority of the time, but they just sure feel like it. I think self-berating as part of the human experience goes beyond a universalism. Again, no scientific backing, but I think everybody does this. I mean, every single human. We're just so hard on ourselves. And I... I think it serves a purpose. I think it probably serves a purpose. I think it's it's part of the way the human brain works in order to keep our ego in check. Um, you know, we had on episode 160 of the Intoxicated podcast, we had a couple of guests with us and one of them, Liz, she said something to us recently, not on the podcast, but she talked about the the fact that she heard from a therapist that the purpose there is a purpose for shame and the purpose for shame is when we feel bad about things that we've done it it proves that we have standards that we have values that we hold dear and when we violate those standards or those values then that is embarrassing or shameful or just just kind of makes us feel bad and i think that contributes to what I'm saying when I say I think there is a purpose for us beating ourselves up. It, you know, because if you don't, right, if you do bad things and you don't beat yourself up or you do questionable things and you don't beat yourself up, then, you know, that that's a that's a scarier situation, right? When you when you don't have any kind of standards that you're trying to uphold yourself to. And your you know your bad behavior doesn't doesn't phase you. That would be more scary. So I get it. I get that that you know um, being harder on ourselves than anyone else will ever be on us. I I get that it's founded in something that's kind of important. Um, but boy, are we hard on ourselves as humans? Have you have you felt that? Have you? Have you had times or are you always, you know, your own worst critic and does it 
does it weigh you down? How do you feel about that? That's a pretty heavy question, especially since, as our listeners know, I give you no prep for these podcast episodes. Um, well, I was just rereading the four agreements, and I'm um, just kind of through the first part before we start to get into the agreements. And they talk about, like he talks about that as far as we are harder on ourselves than anybody else will be. Um, he also makes a point that, you know, about being true to your word and how that's very important. So I think when you are true to your word and you could, you have a set of standards for yourself, um, doesn't necessarily mean you have to push them off onto others, but I have definitely experienced the beating myself up or feeling bad or trying to reimagine or wish I could go back in time to do something different. Um, sometimes I think that the outside community we think are going to be tougher on us than than they are. I think the people are more gracious and graceful to us than we are to ourselves in most situations. I definitely have had experiences where I had a conflict with somebody and maybe I didn't perceive that it was going to be much of a conflict and the other person kind of flew off the handle and was really aggressive and maybe that happens one out of a hundred times. But in my experience, that's enough to make me cautious going into potentially conflicting conversations with people. And, and I mean, I hear that a lot from other people too. We're just so worried about what the other person's going to say. Now, when you're dealing with an alcoholic relationship, I think that fear is very, you know, grounded in fact. And, it, you know, it's a valuable fear of self-protection because often when we're like, if you were to bring something up to me back when I was drinking, whether I was actively drinking or just alcohol was part of my, my, you know, daily and weekly system, the potential for me to fly off the handle was really, really high. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I guess the point I'm trying to make there is I feel like when we have had those experiences, even if they're rare or even if they're less rare, but even if they are rare, we, you know, the, the potential for that happening sets us back and and makes us worried when we're going into conversations that that could potentially happen. What we want to talk about today, you know, we interact with so many different people and it's such a blessing, such an important part of our lives. We interact with so many different people that are in, on one side or the other, an alcoholic relationship they're trying to recover from alcoholism, either as the drinker or secondhand alcoholism. And what what I find is that a lot of people are really, really hard on themselves as part of that process. And I want to share, I want us to share what we've seen from people and, you know, explain that from our side of the fence, it looks totally different than what's going on in that person's head. Again, going back to as the that as the individual you're always harder on yourself than the people you're around would ever be hard on you and i mean i just have so much love and empathy and compassion for people and then every once in a while we'll get a glimpse to how much they don't find themselves worthy and it shocks me it shocks me one so let's let's give some examples to make this more tangible more con oh you don't remember the name of the author of the four agreements do you right behind oh, you. Oh, hey, look. Let's actually cite a source. How exciting. Yes. But it's, I 
I read it. Be- Don Miguel Ruiz. Yeah. Ruiz. That's I, great. It's I, just it's a really popular book. Yeah. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people read it. So I read it. A tribute. Like when you were actively drinking, and I feel like I didn't understand or absorb it, and now that I'm rereading it again, um, it takes on a whole different meaning. Like there's a section that just really was really confounding when it was talking about how if you are hard on yourself, you will allow other people to be hard on you. Yeah. So there's that standard of if you have that self-love, you're not going to put up with shit. I love that. It's a better way to put it. I mean, he puts it more eloquently in the... you know, well, that's where I was like, wow, that I totally missed that before. One of my friends from Shout Sobriety just swears by that book. I don't I don't know why I have not yet read that, but I definitely need to because I mean he describes it as life changing, so Yeah. I uh it's I need to get in there for sure. So one of these situations that we're talking about is you know, we I think we encounter a lot of people who think they're not trying hard enough on their own recovery. And I'm specifically talking about people who are the loved one of an alcoholic in this particular case. They think they're not trying hard enough or not doing enough. And I'm here to tell you that in different stages in the process of recovery, survival is an accomplishment. I mean, just getting out of bed and getting through it every day when you're living an alcoholic relationship, that's something to be proud of. And not something to beat yourself up about. I mean, it's so complex. This is the kind of thing that nobody talks about. There's no learning for it in school or in families, really. Uh, so when you're th- thrust into one of these situations, you don't know what you're doing. Finding resources is daunting and challenging. And, you know, there's so much to be done. And just surviving, just Keeping yourself going, keeping, if you've got kids, keeping the family, you know, breathing, keeping yourselves above water is something to be really, really proud of. And so when I hear people that feel like they're not, they're not doing enough or they're not trying hard enough, it makes me really sad because uh, just continuing on in this world is a really, it's a big accomplishment. Do you, do you remember the period? I'm going to ask you these types of questions a lot. Do you remember when it was the worst of the worst? And did you feel satisfied by the fact that you were keeping it going? Or did you feel like you should be doing something more? Well, I think that I don't remember the feelings exactly, but I can only imagine that on those days I felt like I should be doing something more. When it was really bad? Yeah. I mean, we had kids to take care of. They didn't need to be living in this. So I don't know what the more would have been, but maybe it would have been, oh, speak up sooner, leave, whatever. I don't know what that would have been, but there were all sorts of thoughts running through my head, I'm sure. I mean, just thinking back in this situation, like, yeah, that there's something that could be done that's different than what we're doing. That's, yeah, it's interesting because as the co-parent, I was always so impressed with how you were holding it all together. No, I'm not blowing sunshine. It's totally yeah, true. You never, you never lost track of where they needed to be, you know, what was on the calendar. I mean, yes, there was tension 
There was all kinds of stuff that they had to live through that was uncomfortable, but you were always there for them. And so even as bad as it got, I always was super impressed with you. Well, thank you. I mean, I think that that's why I wanted to give them outside experiences and and let them do things. And I mean, I remember something that I have, you know, when you were talking, it made me think of like doing more. Oh, maybe I could have been more engaged when we would go to your family's house. Um, for uh, to visit your family at your parents and you know maybe I should have been doing more but just being there sometimes was just super hard yeah so me just showing up because there were countless times where I did not want to go oh sure because the amount of alcohol that you would have access to that it was vacation you didn't have breaks you didn't have responsibilities so just going, I feel like I feel like now, looking back, that was gargantuan, but it made me feel like shit that I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go and be around my kids, around their grandparents and their cousins and their aunt and uncle. I just would rather have not been a part of that. So just going was an effort. So that's interesting. And, so like a almost like a, a we're conditioned to think of family time as special and wonderful and great. And so you felt guilt because you wanted family time to be all those things and you knew that it wasn't going to be. Right. And it was the last place I wanted to be. I did not want to be confronted with two liquor cabinets. Right. You know, I mean, basically your parents had two liquor cabinets. One that was downstairs where I know that you went and drank from. Yeah. The liquor cabinet that in the, they just kept stuff that they didn't drink very often, but right. it was in the basement, so I could walk by it and yeah, it was drink like off of it. Right and, in and out, just of our way of coming out from the lake. So, yeah, so I didn't want to be there. Yeah. Well, yeah, looking back, there's no question in my mind that survival, surviving those vacations, and survival in general, and, and keeping, like I said, the kids on track, um, I'm just floored by your ability to do that and so it pains me not only that I put you in those terrible situations that alcohol put us in those terrible situations but that you felt like you weren't enough because you definitely you definitely were you were really a hero you know another another similar example um we we talk to a lot of people who you know they they're hard on themselves because they question whether it's really that bad you know my alcoholic spouse doesn't sleep in the gutter he doesn't maybe he doesn't cheat on me um he hasn't lost his job so what do i have to complain about you know i i'm just being a wimp everything's fine i need to I need to stop, you know, feeling bad or feeling like this situation (laughs) is untenable. Well, then you are really good at trying to make that case for yourself to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of us drinkers do that. You know, and you would point out all the, those highlights and then all the material things, but there was all that emotional connection that was missing. 
But okay, okay. And so all the peace. So when I would do that, when I would say, "Look, Sherry, I still get up and go to work every day," and you know, look, look around you. We we have a roof over our head. And we have food, and all, everything's fine. When I would say that, did you ever feel bad about yourself for wanting more? No, because you were an asshole, and I didn't. <laughs> I didn't care if we had those things. I didn't care if we had all that. I mean, I loved that. I mean, you know, I loved the stuff we had. We don't have, like, the biggest house on the block, all that sort of stuff. But I just didn't want you to be a jerk. I wanted you to be around for the kids. I wanted peace. I wanted stability. I didn't want to feel uncomfortable in my own house. So then when you would highlight the things that we had and you would talk about the house, I was like, fuck, I feel so uncomfortable being here. When you are away, this house is so much better. That's what I would think. So I don't I don't want the house. If if you were better and we lived in a tent, that would be better. Well, that's great that you never I mean, it's not great that you were in that situation at all. But it's great that you never felt like you were you know, your desires were as much as I've tried to make you feel like what you wanted was unreasonable and we already have everything we need i'm glad that you were grounded in that regard and confident that the things you wanted were important because I, I i do i feel like a lot of people are hard on themselves because they're they think to themselves gosh it's not really as bad you know let, let's take our Echoes of Recovery group, for example. There are people in all different shapes and sizes and ways as it relates to an alcoholic relationship. And so if if you're in that group, you're going to be interacting with people who have been through some really traumatic, desperate things. And I think it's really easy to say, oh, well, you know, my husband still goes to work and comes home every day. So what do I have to complain about? You know, I know I, know I hear people that occasionally question whether their loved one is really an alcoholic. Like, maybe I don't even belong here. And I I hate to hear that kind of self-doubt because, listen, alcohol is a poison. It corrupts lives. It corrupts relationships. And whether you fit in some specific box called alcoholic or whether your loved one fits in some specific box called alcoholic or not, if the alcohol is creating difficulties in your life... <coughs> then you deserve support and you deserve healing. And uh, you just, you know, we always, we do it all the time. We talk about with people, you need to follow your instincts. If it's not a good fit, if it's not a good feel, then then that's a legitimate feeling. And you express that really well, that you, you know, you lived in that situation where um, you wanted more. Not, Not material more, you wanted life and emotional more. Yeah, and I mean, I compared myself to others, you know, and I would compare myself to uh, my past, my history with alcoholics and my family, Um, but I still knew that even if I had these things, it still didn't make everything okay. Yeah. Another way in which people that we get to know are hard on themselves is when, you know, they 
kind of buy into the gaslighting and they think that it's all their own fault. You know, we published an episode of the Intoxicated Podcast a couple of months back, episode 155, Your, your Wife's Not a Bitch, was the beginning of the title of that episode. And often, often, and I did this to you, often, the drinker in a desperate attempt to hold on to alcohol and keep alcohol in their life, they're looking for what can be making this marriage so rocky. Why can't we get along? Why do we fight all the time? I'm not willing to look at alcohol as the cause, so it's got to be something else. Oh, I know what it is. It's you. You're a nag. You're hard to live with. Your expectations are too high. You're not a good wife. You're not supportive. You're not uh, eager enough in bed. You are all these things. And we, as the alcoholic, because, again, we're desperate to not look at the true cause of the problems, which is alcohol, we we don't want to blame you. Like, I, I want to be clear about this. I never wanted to blame you because I thought you were a bad person or... Um, or I, I believe that in your heart you were evil. It was nothing like that. I wanted to blame you because if it was your fault, then it wasn't alcohol's fault and it wasn't my fault. And as long as it wasn't my fault and it wasn't alcohol's fault, I could keep drinking. And I felt good about that. But so that, that pretty relentless pressure came your way. You know, we'd get in an argument and you would know why we got in an argument. We got in an argument because I had had eight beers. But I would say, we got in that argument because you were cold and you didn't want to do the thing I wanted to do or you wanted to leave the party at a reasonable time like everybody else did and I wanted to stay. And why can't you just be more fun, Sherry? Why can't you just loosen up? And so I would do anything that I could to blame it on you. This is another area where you know I want to encourage our listeners to follow your instincts. If it doesn't feel right then it probably isn't. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the relationship problems are your fault as the spouse of the drinker, when the drinker is the one doing the drinking, it's just really, really hard for me to believe. Again, universalisms. We've just seen it so many times where the alcohol is the problem. When the alcohol is gone, the problem doesn't immediately clear up, but it gives the couple a chance to work on things and gives them a chance at least. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those times when you can blame alcohol. Yeah, maybe I was pessimistic and moody and grumpy a lot of times. But it was because alcohol changed me. Yeah. Not just your alcoholism, but my life before you. Yeah. Yeah, the alcohol changed not only me, but changed you as well. Yeah, so changed... But everybody it comes what, in contact with. What was that like when I would just, I'd be like, oh yeah, we fought this last weekend. Yeah, I drank two cases of beer, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about what a nag you are. How did that feel? Did you, did you ever buy into it or did you know that I was full of shit? Well, <coughs> I wouldn't say I bought into it or I, or I thought you were full of shit. I was like, yeah, I am. I am like that. And I have very good reason to be. Well, wait a minute. Now you because, you understand this stuff and you know that yeah. the alcohol caused you to change. But you didn't know that back then. But I felt like, yeah, I know the reason that I'm naggy and cold and I have 
a really hard time hiding my emotions, as you can tell. So, yeah, I would react. Even if it was, like, you know, something small that you had done, and or maybe it was, like, your fourth or fifth beer, you know, and I'd be like, oh, my God, here he goes again, just going off the rails, like, not going to be normal, it's just going to... So I would almost, like, set myself up for this, in this defensive way, to be prepared for battle that night. So I knew what was going on. I knew that I was starting to be self-protective and starting to become defensive because I was unhappy. And I and I know, like, it would hit home when you would say, you're just not a happy person. And I'd be like, I know. And I know the reason why, but you didn't want to hear the reason why. So I, like, would search, you know, myself and try to think about why I'm unhappy. Well, I'm unhappy because alcohol has taken so much from me. My parents were divorced because of alcohol. I saw my sister struggle with her relationship and her kids growing up because of alcohol. So I knew that I was not, you know, this joyful person to be around all the time. And then when it just came to you and I and I could feel like I could let my guard down, yeah, you kind of got the worst of it in a lot of ways. Because I had been on for the kids or for the family or the friends that we were around. So I knew that part of it was that, yeah, I was just, I wasn't happy and I was hard to live with. Did you beat yourself up about that? Sometimes I would and I'd be like, why can't I just keep my mouth shut? Why can't I just fake it around him? Why can't I just be okay with the amount that he drinks? So I would get down on myself, but I just kept like having this nagging feeling like, but you're unhappy because of the alcohol. You're unhappy how it makes him change. Whether it's happy and joyful, because that was just as annoying as booty and sullen. Because it was so false, it was so fake. Because it was just brought on by alcohol. The alcohol's been out of your life for a long time now, and you've done a lot of work in recovery. Do you feel more comfortable and authentic now? Do you do you feel <coughs> less less like there's some something to blame, and and therefore less likely to blame yourself? Yeah. I feel like I am more even keel. I feel like I have more confidence because I am who I am, you know, truly. Um, I feel like I have, I feel like I can encounter a situation that's outside of the relationship that's confrontational. And yes, I'm a hothead and I get frustrated and mad about it, but I don't overreact or underreact. I feel like I react in the appropriate amount of way to that person. And I may come home and trash them or trash the situation to you, but I feel like I react in an appropriate way, whereas before it was either overreact or underreact. I think that's... You used two important words slash phrases. You said you're more confident now and that you don't underreact. 
you don't let people walk over you anymore um, because of that confidence. You, you, I know you don't like conflict. You've always right. said you don't like conflict. Yeah, I don't like conflict. But you're not afraid of it anymore. You'll, if, if something is not right, you'll say it. And I feel like before I say it, I don't just like blurt out a guttural reaction because I can feel like I can trust my instincts a little bit better and I can trust my reaction a little bit better and I can maybe present it a little bit better and I look at it like, is it right for this one person and it's wrong for me and everybody else will be okay with it or is it going to be wrong for others as well? And so when I look and I see the bigger scope of it, then I can confront it and I feel like I am maybe not quite as temperamental about it. But I also don't want other people to be, you know, in the situation where they're afraid to speak up and no one is going to speak up for them or speak up, you know, and we're not talking like serious conflict well, here. Well, let's, let's, let's give a concrete but, example, one that I'm thinking of that happened recently. Someone asked you for a favor at work, and this is someone who had asked you for multiple favors at work, and... You told that person, no, I'm not going to do this additional favor for you because it'll make me full of resentment for you. Yeah. And I don't want to work with someone that I resent. Yeah. And so I, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So that's, I used to, that's remarkable, Sherry. Yeah. I used to do that a lot. Like uh, Gretchen Rubin's, she's the happier podcast. Like I read her books, The Four Tendencies, and I'm an obliger. And so I would do and do and do and do until I would fucking blow up. And I did that at home. I did that at work. I did that with other people. I did that with you know, friends, and maybe I wouldn't blow up to them, but I would blow up in some way, you know, somewhere. And so it was called Obliger Rebellion. And yeah, I, I spoke my truth, I guess. Like, I just think geez, that's... Tag phrase. And I can't believe it was coming out of my mouth, but I was like, but I'm going to be resentful about it and it's going to make me upset. And I would do it only out of obligation to helping others. And you would be the last person I would be part of helping with. Because you've already helped because that person a lot. I've helped you, and now it's going to make me resent you. Well, yeah, I think that's amazing. Another area where people beat themselves up, where people are hard on themselves, is when they start to think that their story is irrelevant. We see this especially in people who start to make progress. And it can be they're making progress in their relationship, or it can be they're making progress as individuals moving away from their relationship. But because we spend so much time working with people that are in it, you know, in a really bad situation and struggling, when things start to get better for people, they think, oh, you know, my story doesn't matter anymore. Or um, it's, it's not fair for me to, to talk about how things are good and to celebrate because so many other people are hurting. I don't want to, you know... You don't want to gloat, mm -hmm. I think, is, is the word that that's I think that people describe. are thinking. Yeah, I think it's that's too gloaty word. for me to share what's going on in my life. But again, I'm here to say that from our side of the fence, oh my God, we need people that have success and, and good pieces to their story for them to share those. Because, and we hear this all the time from the people that are still in it that are really struggling. When I hear about success, it gives me hope. It gives me hope that maybe my relationship will work or that maybe 
moving on past my relationship and 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 leaving that chapter behind and closed, maybe that'll be the right thing for me. Or it also might give you an idea of something you hadn't thought of. Absolutely. And I think in our recovery communities, we need to hear those success stories, not just because we need hope, but we have also become connected to these people and we want to continue to hear how things are progressing in their lives. And even if it's two years down the road and then something happens and it's a step back, we want, I want to know that the communities that we've built with our echoes and shout, like that those people can come back anytime or they can post like something like, Hey, this was, we were two years down the road and this happened and maybe it wasn't related to a relapse, but it's just like, then we can say, Oh, those are, it doesn't have to be an alcohol relapse. It can right. be an emotional relapse. Right. We see that a lot. Yeah. Or that we've experienced that a lot. Exactly. And then also that it just gives insight for other people. What can happen down the road that everything isn't going to be just blissful after 18 months. Yeah. That it's a long road, but it's a truthful road. I would encourage people who sometimes feel that way to think of it this way. It's, it can be draining to be a part of a support group, especially, you know, it seems like things go in waves, Sherry. It seems like, you know, when it rains, it pours and multiple people that we're working with will have a really big challenge all at the same time. And we want to be there for those people and everyone in the group wants to be there for those people. But that, that can take a lot of our emotional energy to be supportive, right? And then when somebody brings a success story into the picture, it's not, it's not gloating. It's not, oh, you know, sorry, your life sucks so much. Let me tell you how great mine is. It's not, it's not like vacation pictures posted to Instagram when you've got to work a double, you know, it's, it's not like that. It's the opposite of that. It, it, it refuels everybody else. I mean, when all of your emotions are pointed toward supporting people who are struggling and then you get to have some joyful emotions for someone that you know and love who's having some success. It's it's recharging the batteries. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're ever leery about it and thinking, gosh, things are going good. I don't fit in anymore. Um, I'm going to I'm going to be hard on myself in this way. I'm not going to share my joy and look for support around my success because I don't want to make other people feel bad about this, their situation. You know, I try really hard not to tell people how to feel, but if that's your situation, you're looking at that all wrong. Your joy brings so much to the people around you when you share it. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, if, if all you ever do is post your, you know, beach vacation photos on Instagram and you don't have an authentic bone in your body and you don't have honest conversations with people, then that's gloaty. You know, I got frankly no time for that. I'm just not interested in being your friend. But if you share the hard times with me and then you also want to share the joys, oh my gosh, you're going to make my day when you do that. Mm-hmm. And it happens all the time. We hear something good happen for somebody and it literally lifts me up and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great day now because I can keep going back to that. I can think about this person and what had just happened for them. Yeah, That's and then we awesome. also feel excited because, you know, if it's people that you're close with, like in your recovery groups, then you've gotten to know their struggles. Um, 
So you are happy for them and you want to see their successes, you know, just as much as you would want to be able to share the success that happens to you. So I want people to be happy. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that's really interesting getting to work with a large variety of people is I'm obviously an extrovert. I uh, am not afraid of the sound of my own voice to everyone's detriment who listens to this podcast and to your significant detriment, Sherry. But I do recognize that you know, different strokes for different folks. And there's all kinds of different people out there. And some people are more reserved than me. Some people are more shy than me. And it pains me when we start to learn that that people who are less extroverted or outgoing feel guilty because they feel like they're not offering enough. They feel like they're not, you know... You know, what... We will have people that are in our group and are on our calls that are 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 listening and and when I see that they're there and I know that they're there consistently and they're listening and they're getting a lot out of it, I can't tell you how that makes my heart sing and I know I'm being very frou frou on this episode, but it does I know because they keep showing up if they weren't getting anything out of it, they wouldn't keep showing up. Mm-hmm. And so they keep showing up and whether they are outgoing and they're in, in verbally engaging or not, that means nothing to me. If they keep showing up, they're getting something out of it. Yeah. And that's all I want. You know, I mean, it, it, this shouldn't be about what I want or not, but I, I it pains me to think that people, that's how they are getting value out of the work that we do and the the uh, community that we create, right? That we're a part of. And if that's how they're getting stuff out of it, I'm certainly going to be <clears throat> the last person that would ever judge them on how they interact. Mm-hmm. You know? Because yeah. I, I beat myself up because I know I talk too much. I... I get off the Echoes video calls or the Shout video calls and I'm like, God, why can't I just shut up? (laughs) I think the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that beats me up. (laughs) But to think that there are people that are on the opposite end of the spectrum that are getting off those same calls and saying, gosh, why can't I just work up the nerve to turn my camera on and talk? Yeah. You know, I, I, I have so much empathy, even though I'm a different style o person I have so much empathy for you if that's your situation I mean I, you shouldn't be feel you shouldn't feel bad and beat yourself up about what your level of comfort is that's right I mean whether it's it's genetics or whether it's conditioning we all you know get to the stage in life that we're in for a reason right and our comfort level was developed for a reason, whether it's innate or experiences made us feel the way we feel. I don't really care. I don't care why you are the way you are or how you got to where you got. That's how you are. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for you, whoever you are. Well, you do care. You're just not going to judge how the situation, because 
You do care about the situations that the people that we're trying to help are in. I do, but I don't sit there and think, but you're not gosh, judge I wish them. that person would turn on their camera yeah. and start talking because they would gain so much more from this if they would do that. I think, God, thank God this person's showing up. And they're, and I'm not talking about one person. I'm, they're, yeah. I'm talking about lots of people that show up this way. They keep coming back and they keep coming back. That tells me they're getting something from it. When somebody shows up a couple times and then they stop showing up, you know, I think to myself, well, this wasn't a good fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, I don't know what that person needs. I have no idea. But the ones that keep showing up, and then I know because you know we occasionally, like I said, get little glimpses of this. I know that they're beating themselves up later because they can't find the strength to engage. Gosh, be there however you want to be there. Just just keep being there mm-hmm. if it's helping you. There are, believe it or not, areas in my life where I don't talk all the time. And I am an observer. And I get a lot out of those. I enjoy that. That's fine. You know? You're smirking. Not smirking. You find that hard to believe, don't you? I'm just trying to think of an area where that happens. I mean, I know where I am on the totem pole in different situations. I can go to, <laughs> I can go to a meeting and not say a word the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can do that. I can do that frequently, believe it or not. I know you're thinking not. can't believe that. Yeah, so, gosh. Um, just just keep, if it's helping you in some way, just keep showing up. And I'm not just talking about our Echoes group. I'm, I'm talking about keep showing up in life. If you, if you have a book club that you're in, or if you go to Al-Anon and you don't want to talk, I mean, I, I don't know what the rules are in Al-Anon, but I don't think they should make you talk if you don't want to talk. If uh, Yes, now, listen. I say it all the time. The writing that we do in our group, I think it's really, really helpful to do the writing. I think it's really, really helpful to read your writing and get feedback from the group. I think there's growth there. It's cathartic. It's therapeutic. It's all those big words, right? So I encourage people to do that. But if you can't, don't. Don't not show up because you can't. Mm-hmm. We all we all have our limitations, and just get what you can out of the situation that you're in. Yeah, be proud that you're showing up and you're doing something that works for you, and you should be proud that you're doing it in a way that you feel comfortable. Because sometimes you feel pressure to do things a certain way. And I'm speaking from experience. And you're like, that's just not how my body works. That's just not how my brain works. That's just not how my heart's going to get into it. So I'm going to take it from this side of it and take this piece from it. And others have been like, well, that's not really doing it. Well, but I'm enjoying it this way. Please let me use it how I want to use it. Yeah. 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 So find those non-judgmental places where... You get what you get out of it, and it feels good, and then just keep doing your thing. Don't worry about what others think. I can tell you, Sherry and I think, you know, think a lot of you for for doing it your way, so keep doing it. Um, we do a lot of writing in our group, and people, groups. in our groups, yeah, mm-hmm. in all our groups, we do a lot of writing, and it pains me that sometimes people think that the writing is about the writing and they get hard on themselves and they get shy not because they are shy but because they feel like 
their writing doesn't measure up. We've got some great writers, some some people who just have a talent for the art of writing, right? Mm -hmm. And so it can be intimidating when you hear one of those people read some eloquent, beautiful story and you think, I can't write like that. So I'm just going to clam up and not do it. Listen, the writing isn't about the writing. The writing's about the story. It's about truth and vulnerability and expressing that. And if you can't express it because you just can't, I got respect for that. But if you can't express it because you feel like you're being measured against, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, who happens to be in the group along with you, <laughs> you're you're not. Why are you laughing? Oh, well, it's just that very was a weird ti- choice. Wasn't yeah, it? but it's just very timely. Oh, because it's Halloween. Because it's Halloween. I bet he would always. Was he an alcoholic too? Yeah, I think he drank a lot and smoked a lot of pot. I think yeah. it was the history, very macabre. So he would be good to have a spooky season for our writing group spot. How about Sarah Heppola as a comparison? If yeah. I know that that's a little more obscure, but she's a brilliant writer. and She writes about her addiction and recovery, among many other things. Mm-hmm. But she's intimidating to me. Mm-hmm. And if I was in a writing group with her, I would be like, oh, I don't want to read my writing because hers is so much better. That's not what it's about. Right. It's, I think it's about, for me, I know that I have come to terms with I am not a good writer. I struggle even to write emails. It is just not my specialty. And I do it about 20 times before I decide on what to send. And then it's always, bleh, you know. <laughs> um, I've gotten a little bit better, but I felt like when I do like writing and stuff, I have to just do like bullet points or it's one long run on sentence and I'm just going to have to be okay with that because it's just about getting out what you need to say or what you're thinking or what you're feeling. It doesn't have to make sense to anybody else. And I know some people are like, oh, I didn't get a chance to edit or I didn't, you know, well, that's not the point of that's right. a therapeutic writing exercise. Right. You're not selling a book. And that's right. You know, these are like, think of them as your journal entries and we're just getting a peek at your, your journal entry. That's right. The truth's in there, whether you know how to use punctuation or not, what, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. So yeah, I hope we can encourage people to write more, not less. Writing is so good for you. And you said journal a second ago. Yeah. What, it, you don't have to be in a group. You don't have to be in a support group to write. Mm-hmm. You can do your own writing, but you, I can't tell you how many times it's definitely universalism when people write what they're going throughout and they say, Oh, just writing that I can feel my shoulders dropping. Mm-hmm. I can feel the tension leaving my body for having taken it from my brain, which is the only place it's ever lived and putting it on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. We, we are very close with a, a widow of this disease disease her husband took his own life as a result of his alcoholism and she found him after he took his own life and she wrote eventually it took her took her a long time understandably so but she wrote that whole you know the night and the following morning when she found him she wrote that all out and i think the initial title that she used is i'm not going to get it exactly right but this lives here now. This is where this lives now. Something like that. Because she was able to remove it from her head, put it in writing. It's always there in case she needs to access it because, you know, it's it's a chapter of her life and she didn't want to lose it altogether. 
but she also didn't want to just have it fester in her brain and, mm-hmm. and gnaw at her forever. And so the art, not the art, that's the wrong word, the um, act of getting it out of your brain onto paper or into a computer file is so, so, so valuable. So it this particular person is an excellent writer, but that's not the point. It's not about the writing skill. It's about it's about freeing freeing your soul and getting it out of the place where it's poison. So write. Write early, write often, write to yourself, write to others. Just write. And don't beat yourself up because you're one long run on sentence. Or bullet points. Or bullet points. Because, you know, sometimes I'm not. My hand hurts because I like to write longhand. Because <laughs> I'm an even worse typist than I am a writer. You know, I think people beat themselves up a lot because they feel like they're weak. The process of going through an alcoholic relationship takes a long time. Measured in years, not days or weeks. And when you're in an unresolved situation in the process, when you're not sure what the end is going to be for you, you know, should I stay or should I go, that kind of a thing, it makes people feel weak a lot. Why can't I just decide? Why can't I figure it out? And when we encounter people that are in that undecided situation, they might feel weak. All I see is strength. Um, I want to bring a very personal example up. When, when you and I, when I was still drinking, we've talked about this before, so this is nothing new. But we continued to be physically in contact with each other. We continued to have sex. And I know that one of the things that you have beat yourself up about at times is, you know, I didn't have any feelings for this guy at this point. Why didn't I cut that off? Why did I allow my body to be used in that way? And I know that sometimes, I don't know how you feel right now, but I know sometimes you have felt that as weakness. When I look back, I see that as total strength because you were in a really bad situation and you were doing what you thought was best to appease the situation and to not make it worse and to, like we've talked about, to let the kids sleep and to keep the peace. So I'm not suggesting that people need to have sex when they don't want to, to be strong. That's not what I'm saying at all. But in your particular situation... In our particular situation, that to me, looking back, as despicable as it was, was a sign of a tremendous amount of strength on your part. I know at some point you felt like it was weakness. How do you feel about it now? A mixed bag. Sometimes I do wish that I had said no and stopped it early on so it didn't become this habit. Um, but then sometimes I kind of looked at it like it was self-sacrificing. Um, and I think that's, you know, a strength in itself. Yeah. So, yeah, mixed bag. Sometimes, it, you know, it's like, wish I had had the strength and the bravery and the 
fortitude to say no and, and stop that early on. But also I was, you know, young. Um, younger, you know, a young adult. Like, you don't know what is going to play out. So you just let it happen just to keep the peace. And so then the self-sacrifice for the kind of like you said, you know, so there wouldn't be an argument. So then there wouldn't be the waking of the kids or we wouldn't be up all night arguing. And, um, you know, so yeah. kind of that self-sacrifice taking one for the team, I guess, has a little bit of strength behind it. Yeah. When, when we get to know people, you know, th- this is an area that people are not comfortable talking about. We don't, we have very few conversations with people about sex. That's kind of where they draw the line. People will, will often share a lot of details about their relationship, but they don't want to go there. So I certainly, you know, we don't have a lot of examples of how people deal with the situation, the, the physical sexual situation, but we have lots of situations where people put up with behavior that they wish they weren't putting up with mm-hmm. or that may, might be doing what is traditionally categorized as enabling. Mm-hmm. And they, you can just hear it in their voice. They just feel so weak as a result. And when I hear someone that's moving through this long, you know, years long process, all, all I see is strength. You know, they're trying, they're trying to figure it out. Weakness is when you just resign yourself and say, well, I'm in an alcoholic marriage. I'm going to die in an alcoholic marriage and it's just going to suck. I'm going to, you know, have 10 arguments a week and I'm going to hate this person and sign me up for the next 50 years. Let's, this is just what it's going to be. I think that when we meet people that are beating themselves up because they don't know what they want to do, it's because, I mean, there's just so much involved, but you don't have that clear answer. And and that finding that clear answer takes a a long time, it takes a lot of experience and situations and growth on your part, and maybe lack of growth on the other person's part, or maybe growth on their part, and you grow apart. You know, even in sobriety. So, I I feel bad when people are like, I just don't know what to do, because you don't want to. Again, you don't want to overreact, or you don't want to underreact. You don't want to make the wrong decision when you feel like you haven't put in everything that you've had to offer. And I think when you get to that point that you've put in everything you have to offer, you've exhausted all resources, you've got, you've pushed yourself to the end, and no matter where your partner is, that's when you feel like you can make those decisions. Like, I knew that it was not time for me to leave yet, our relationship. Yeah. Even though there were plenty of times where I could have easily packed up my bags and said, that's it. I mean, not easily, but packed up my bags and said, that's it, I'm done. And then, you know, be bitter and have that what if, what if, what if nagging me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people are so hard on themselves. This for me, and I know I'm speaking for you, but I know you'll agree. This for me and for you, this isn't about pity. When I when I hear people describe the situation they're in, I, I never ever feel pity for them. Oh, why you know, why can't you just get yourself out of that situation? It's nothing like that for me. Yeah. It's about bravery. You know, I have no numbers really behind this, but 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say this anyway. For for every one person who listens to this podcast, for instance, which is, you know, that's that's entry level, right? You're not engaged yet. You're not interacting with anyone. You haven't reached out for for um, for live support. You're just listening to a podcast. So that's the first thing you can do, right? For and not just our podcast, but whatever. You're reading a, a book, podcaster. right? You're reading articles. You're you're looking for that help at that non-confrontational level where nobody has to know you're looking. Informational collection. Yeah. For every one person who listens to this podcast, for instance, I, I'm convinced, I'm sure there are hundreds of people who do nothing and are just resigned to their alcoholic fate. So when I talk about this is about bravery, man, I mean it. If you're doing something, that's a brave first step, and it's going to lead to more. If you're not willing to accept the status quo, that's bravery. You know, I hate the phrase that's really popular in our culture these days, and I use it sometimes even though I hate it, but uh, because it's, 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 so, it, it's descriptive and everyone knows what you're talking about. But I hate the give yourself grace. You know, I hate, I hate when people say that. Oh, you need to give yourself some grace. I don't know why that <laughs> does me wrong. But what I really want to say when I say you need to give yourself some grace is get the fuck off your own back. Because that's what I really mean. Oh, well, yeah, because, you know, I could go into the whole Christian side of grace and how there's the theological differences in different denominations. But for us, in our denomination, grace is a given from God. So you should give others grace the way God has given you grace. But I like the get get the fuck off your own back. Yeah, as much as I want to engage in that conversation <laughs> about the theology of grace, maybe that's a different podcast. Yeah, but I, I like that better because, you know. You know, you know why I like that better? Because, you know, it's hard enough. What we're all going through, it's hard enough without me making it harder for myself. It's hard enough without you being on your own back. So, get off your own back. This was good, Sherry. I feel bad. Uh, not, not Well, I guess this is berating myself for the topic a little bit. I feel bad that you put on makeup before this conversation. Well, yeah, you said, oh, it's going to be a good one. So I was like, oh, it's going to be joyful or happy or non-emotional. Well, thanks for showing up and being honest. And it's time to go fix your eyeliner. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs>